Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, we get some inflation data tomorrow. CPI, the year-over-year consensus is 8.4%. Um, I don't think wages are going up 8.4%, so that's a challenge for many folks out there. Let's check in with Robert Rosner, Executive Director, Senior U.S. Economist at Morgan Stanley. R Robert, what are you going to be Award-winning economist. What's that? Award-winning economist. Award aren't they all? No. <laughs> that's the point. He won the NABE Outlook Award for the most accurate economic forecasts over the past four quarters. So... Woohoo. Yeah, so he knows right. what he's talking about. So you, we're going to ask him about inflation and sure. stuff. You know, this Let's do perfect. it. Let's do it. Robert, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time here. What are you going to be looking for tomorrow, Robert, in that inflation data? Yeah, well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on, and, and you're too nice. Um, but when it comes to the inflation data tomorrow, we're certainly going to see a lot of heat. Um, we're looking for a high headline inflation reading driven by the upside in energy prices as well as food prices. And underneath the surface, the core should remain elevated as well. We're seeing a little bit of give back in terms of goods inflation, some of the areas that were leading the high inflation prints that we saw last year. Areas like used car prices appear to that they've pulled back a little bit. But on the services side of the picture, where we've seen that broadening out of inflationary pressures in recent months, we actually look for some acceleration there in things like rents, owners equivalent rents, as well as some of the COVID sensitive categories like airfares and hotels all look like they're set up for high readings. And all of that's important as we think about how to read this print, because we know the top line is going to be high driven by energy prices. The internals are going to tell us a lot more about where inflation is likely to trend over the months ahead and if we are going to see any sequential deceleration. So, um, but where do you think now it's likely to trend over the, you know, a lot of people are saying it's going to peak with this reading. Um, our Abigail Doolittle, who is a chartist, disagrees. What's your view? Well, that's the key question. You know, on a 12-month basis, we do expect that inflation is going to peak. We're expecting that this peak reading for headline CPI is going to come in at 8.6%. So again, that multi-decade high. And as we make the lap around those tough base effects from the spring, we should see inflation coming off of those peaks. I think the key question here is what's going on with those core internals and how quickly are we going to roll off of those peaks and to where? Our forecast would say, yes, we're going to come off of those peaks. It's going to be a slow grind off of that peak for inflation, though. Year over year, inflation is going to remain elevated. It's likely in our forecast to remain above 7% until we get into the second half of the year. Uh, so those pressures are still going to be there. Um, what we need to see is if the core is going to start decelerating in a material way, that can give us more confidence that we will see inflation slow further or more materially when we're getting into the end of next year, early, uh, sorry, end of this year, early next year. Um, but that evidence is not there yet. And, and what we're seeing is that a trend is forming uh, that suggests some further support. All right. So, Robert, given that inflationary backdrop, give us your assessment of kind of where the Fed is right now in terms of their actions and kind of how you think that might play out for the remainder of the year. Yeah, well, this is clearly a Fed that is taking inflation much more seriously and has undergone a very hawkish shift in recent months as a result. And we're expecting the Fed to deliver 
on more hawkish expectations. We're expecting a 50 basis point rate hike from the Fed at the May meeting. We're expecting another 50 basis point rate hike at the June meeting. All the while, policymakers have given us an indication that the balance sheet runoff is likely to begin. We think that announcement comes in May. We just learned in the minutes last week that will likely occur at a pace of about $95 billion per month. So that's a lot of policy tightening coming in the pipeline. And there were a number of important things that we learned in the FOMC minutes last week, uh, particularly around policymakers' preferences for tightening policy expeditiously, more are favoring 50 basis point rate hikes, and coming back to the inflation data, that's going to be the key guide. We do think that we'll get to in May and June, what does the policy path look like thereafter? It remains data dependent, and so if inflation does not pull back materially, we should expect the Fed to continue to pursue a more hawkish policy stance. All right, so back-to-back 50 basis point hikes, and for those uh, wondering, there's no April meeting for the Fed. They skip it, maybe because of Easter, I don't know, but um, their next meeting is May 4th. Um, Robert, talk to me about, you know, Paul said isn't everyone, but no, um, Wall Street is one example of a place where everyone doesn't get a trophy. There's one winner. (laughs) <laughs> you are it. Participation. Um, so talk to us about your process. You know, what What do you think is different about your process that allows you to uh, forecast more accurately? Well, I think it's been continuously the case as we move through uh, this recovery and as we're moving through this expansion, we really have to get into the weeds. There's a lot of specific drivers moving at the sector level. So for Morgan Stanley Research, it's about the collaborative process. We get to hear very smart things from analysts who are experts in the oil sector who know what's going on with CapEx. Uh, Same thing with the auto sector and so on. So that collaboration really plays a big role in the forecasting process. And then also, you know, keeping a very close eye on the models. Uh, there have been a lot of surprises. That is clearly what caught the Fed by surprise coming into this year, is the models would have predicted transitory inflation. We have to be constantly questioning what the models are saying and understanding what the output means in the context of a very fast-moving economic backdrop. So this is a, a real interesting point for me, Robert. Is Morgan Stanley back in the office now? We are back in the office and, you know, talk about collaboration. Nothing like seeing people face to face feels really good. That's interesting. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. A lot of different companies trying to come to, to grips with it. So I always like that when we get somebody on to see, hey, are you guys actually in the office? Are you working remotely? And Matt and I are here in the office. Aren't yeah, we? but Robert won the trophy when people were home. The only trophy he cares about is Institutional Investor Magazine. That is the one that Southside really cares about. Not as much as, as in the old days, but still, I think it's pretty important. Robert Rosner, Executive Director, Senior U.S. Economist for Morgan Stanley, working from the office, expecting 50 basis points rise from the Federal Reserve over the next two meetings. Tracy McMillian. She's head of a global asset allocation strategy at Wells Fargo and is William a graduate <laughs> of William & Mary right down the road from my University of Richmond uh, Spiders. Nice little rivalry going there. Tracy, we're going to have some CPI data tomorrow. It's going to be an ugly read. What's your inflation call? Yeah, so uh, we're definitely seeing a perfect storm of inflationary pressures. And, you know, we do think we're going to see an eight handle on this uh, CPI headline number tomorrow. So as you said, the numbers are going to be ugly this week. We've got CPI, we've got PPI coming out. But inflation, we think, is probably near its high for the cycle. Um, Our commodities analyst always says that, 
uh, the cure for high prices is high prices. And, you know, we don't see uh, things like oil spiking higher at this point, but trading in a really broad range with some potential upside uh, as we go into the end of the year. And, you know, other commodities probably choppy too. So they they really impact headline inflation. Um, But we're also seeing, you know, at this point, shutdowns in China and supply shortages from that. And all of that, we think, keeps inflation elevated but again, you know, here in the eights, um, we're probably toward the top for this cycle. How difficult is it to factor in geopolitical risk and issues when you're looking at these markets, Tracy? Because, of course, you know, last year this time, you wouldn't have known that we're going to have this sort of extra crimp in the supply chain, extra boost to inflation of Russia invading Ukraine. And for all we know, you know, next year, we could be looking at a bigger problem around China. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's really um, those unexpected events that happen to markets that cause the kind of, uh, you know, volatility that, that we tend to see uh, in market cycles. And, you know, this time around, um, we not only had COVID kind of ending and instead of, you know, celebrating the reopening from COVID, now we are uh, lamenting a war in Europe and looking at the market impacts of that conflict um, because exports from Russia and Ukraine have caused additional supply shocks in addition to the ones that we were already seeing. So we had to, you know, increase our inflation expectation. We had to pull back on our growth numbers. And, you know, unfortunately, commodities don't really clear quickly. And this war is, you know, uh, adding additional supply shocks to commodities. Uh, So the off-ramp now to inflation um, has been lengthened, and and the Federal Reserve is ramping up its policy response. So all of that is something that markets have had to recalibrate, really, in just the last three months. So do you expect, Tracy, that this Federal Reserve will raise interest rates 50 basis points maybe over the next two meetings? Do you think they'll be that aggressive? Yeah, uh, we do. We think they're preparing markets for a really tough inflation fight. And they told us that they're going to do what it takes um, to you know, quell inflation, and they're front-loading these hikes. So we do think that means probably 50 basis points in May, probably another 50 basis points in June. Uh, and they're also going to be implementing quantitative tightening. That's another tool in their toolkit they're, they're using, um, and they're bringing that to the fore very quickly as well. Um, so their job of orchestrating a soft landing is going to be really tough. We've only utilized quantitative tightening once before, and it was to a much lesser degree, and it ended shortly after it started. So, you know, the Fed is now using uh, both rate increases and quantitative tightening to get inflation under control, and we think that's going to be a headwind to markets. So where do you hide? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so really, investors are, are uh, asking that question. And, you know, looking across different asset classes, we're seeing a fairly steady move out 
uh, of equities, but not a run for the exits. And we're not suggesting running for the exits and equities. Um, we are suggesting moving back towards neutral uh, strategic allocation. So that means holding some equities, but not being over-risked. It means being diversified in equities and moving away from higher beta equities like emerging markets and small cap. And adding to uh, fixed income from maybe, you know, the, the higher beta equities. And for there, we would say, look at the intermediate part of the curve with 10 years at 2.7%. Uh, that's starting to look more attractive, certainly more so than we've seen in a couple of years. All right, Tracy, great stuff. As always, Tracy McMillian, head of global asset allocation strategy for Wells Fargo. I think she, Tracy's based in Winston-Salem, the home of Wake Forest University. Um, part of all those great colleges down in the great state of North Carolina. So we have UNC, we have a little place called Duke, NC State, you got Wake Forest, you got basically the Atlantic Coast Conference basically all located within a, you know an hour of each other. But you got to right. go to the Midwest oh, to please. find a basketball champion. Oh, please. All right, let's bring in a professional here because we want to talk cybersecurity here. Uh, Bob Kolaski, Senior VP for Exeger. Bob, we have a hot war in Ukraine. I think about cyber aspects to that. What have you noticed in terms of maybe some of the activity over there and, and, and what risk it may pose to some Western countries? Sure. It's great to be with you. Um, I mean, I think the first thing I would take away is cyber has been fully integrated into a, a war plan here. And uh, for Russia, um, We've seen their attacks not be cyber-specific as much as cyber being part of their overall campaign to, you know, illegitimately go after Ukraine and, and the Ukrainian people. And so that means their attacks have been somewhat strategic, just going after communications infrastructure, um, which is in intentional to hurt the Ukrainian uh, military's command and control, things like that, as well as uh, things against the electric grid and, and the financial sector, um, which just cause uh, more inconvenience for you know, the Ukrainian people and, you know, to help the Russians achieve their war aims. And then you throw that in with some disinformation and using cyber to get access to uh, credentials for uh, Ukrainian military leaders, people involved in the Ukrainian military, and um, post illegitimate things on social media sites. So it, it, it's an attack on credentials, spear phishing, to then get access to uh, so confusion. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's a, it's a cyber part of an overall hybrid effort what, by the Russian government. Bob, what can we do in terms of retaliatory attacks? Does the U.S. engage in that sort of, um, I guess, warfare? Uh, do we engage in cyber warfare? Will we hit back that way? So, so I mean, when you put it in the context of warfare, you know, we're, we're still largely following our own strategic um, participation in, in conflict. So, so you're not going to see us actively uh, attacking, committing an offensive cyber operations that, that would be thought of as, as warfare. But do we have a setup like that? We have ability to cause harm in Russia and particularly to cause harm and introduce friction into the operations, the cyber operational system um, of parts of the Russian government. And, uh, you, you know, obviously the administration is somewhat circumspect of when that's used. You know, that, that authority has been given to the Secretary of Defense and, and been, been to Cybercom to go offensive if it's part of our overall strategic efforts. 
So who, Bob, who, who kind of runs our cyber, I guess, security issues from a military perspective? Is that part of the Department of Defense? Is that the NSA? Where does it really yeah, lie, so, that responsibility? So, you know, uh, the administration, under the Trump administration, gave authorities to the Secretary of Defense, which is in the Operational Command is the Cyber Command, which is a link with the National Security Agency. And actually, uh, the White House right now is uh, undertaking a policy review about uh, – you know, what authority should lie with the Secretary of Defense and, and where, the, where the White House itself and the National Security Council should be um, involved in making offensive cyber decisions. And, and, you know, that's the question that the administration is going to be looking at is, yep. are, are you giving too many authorities to the command, closer to the command? And, and, you know, that's a traditional argument that happens in military operations. Interesting, interesting. All right, Bob Kolaski, thanks so much for joining us. Bob Kolaski, Senior VP for Exeger. Uh, talking about cybersecurity in a time of a, you know, a hot war in Europe, it has to raise um, you know, the awareness, presumably, of Western countries. All right, let's talk about supply chains. I want to talk about supply chains as it relates to food. We're definitely seeing issues there, and that includes the uh, in the seafood business. Our next guest uh, is doing something about it. Sylvia Wolf, Executive Director, President, and CEO of Aqua Bounty Technologies. It's kind of like a, it's a, a publicly traded stock on NASDAQ, kind of a biotechnology company. Sylvia, thanks so much for joining us here. wonder if you could just start us off by just describing what Aqua Bounties is and kind of what, 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 what your strategy is. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Aquabani Technologies has two facets to our business. The first is we are the first genetically engineered animal that was approved for food use, and it's our genetically engineered salmon. And so the two components to our business are the fact that we actually farm in a land-based recirculating aquaculture system, which means we are under roof, biosecure. And then the other part of our business that we think is unique is the fact that we have a, a significant expertise in biotechnology. And what I mean by that is selective breeding, gene editing, genetic engineering, as well as thinking about fish health and nutrition. So that's what we do. So I was about to say, I love salmon, but then I realized everyone loves salmon. I don't love salmon. I'm really? Like, yeah. No oh. salmon here. See, I'm not, I'm not even oh. a fish guy, but I love salmon. And I always wonder about... Um, you know, should I buy the farm stuff? Should I go? I feel like I'm splurging if I go for a freshwater uh, salmon. Um, is it as good? Sylvia, I know you're biased, but I'm going to go and eat your product and then I'm going to come back and give my verdict. Is it, does it taste as good as the, the wild stuff? It tastes, it depends on what you, how you define good. And what I mean by that is, we have a slightly milder flavor than a wild-caught salmon, which is what you're describing. But the majority of the salmon that we eat in this country is, quite frankly, um, farmed. You know, 97% of the salmon that's uh, available in the U.S. is farm salmon, and it's all imported. Um, until we build farms like the one that we're currently operating in Indiana or constructing in Ohio, your choices are um, imports. And so wild-caught is seasonal. You know, there are quotas involved, but it's, it does taste slightly different than a farm variety. I mean, I think I probably, now that I think about it, I tend to eat farmed salmon from Scotland, farmed in, in Scotland, mm -hmm. if I'm mm -hmm. uh, Glen Locks, I think is what it's called. But I would much prefer to Ohio. eat a salmon from the great state of Ohio. <laughs> Everything <laughs> tastes better when it comes from Ohio. <laughs> what do you feed them? Do you feed them corn? We feed them a very strict diet that's been constructed for their life stage, 
and we we buy our feed our salmon feed from the largest feed producers in the world and they feed all farm salmon but they've constructed a feed that is specific to the environment where we raise our salmon which is under as i said and there it's a big tank farm um and so you know Salmon are carnivorous, so there's fish meal, fish oil, and a lot of protein, which typically comes from soy in their feed formulation. So we've seen inflation, uh, Sylvia, all over this economy. Oh, yeah. How has it affected your business? You know, it, it's affected us because obviously feed prices are rising. Um, we've all seen what happened with agricultural commodities, soy being you know, no different than any other agricultural commodity. So we've seen increases in feed pricing. But the, I think one of the benefits of the way that we farm is we are not subject to a lot of the variability that, say, net pen farmers are um, subject to because we farm near consumption, so we don't have the inflation with air freight. So your salmon, for example, from salmon is air freighted into the country, and we know that there's now limited capacity, fuel prices are increasing, et cetera. So um, the way that we farm allows us to control those costs and actually produce close to consumption. So where hmm. we've seen inflation is primarily in feed. Um, we're talking to Sylvia Wolf. I'll just uh, bring anyone up to speed who's just tuning in. From Aqua Bounty Technologies, they have genetically engineered salmon that they're going to be growing in Ohio and some other state. Um, and <laughs> Sylvia, might be Illinois. you have tremendous experience in this um, industry. You've been at Sarah Lee in Pillsbury. You've been at um, Tyson Foods and uh, a, a number of, for example, the National uh, Fisheries Institute where you're um, a committee committee member um is this is aqua bounty like a big esg move are you doing kind of the right thing for the climate for the world at aqua bounty we believe so and the and we think about it from two perspectives salmon is a very healthy nutritious protein and providing that and at to a broader part of our population and actually looking to feed the world globally, we're going to need new protein uh, sources. So we think that feeding the world is definitely something that we want to do, but we want to do it in a safe, secure, and sustainable way. So if you think about the way we farm, there's two aspects to our fish and the way that we farm. First, we recirculate 99% of the water. Um, so we think that we use, you know, we're judicious about our use of a natural resource. And then our fish, the benefit of the genetic engineering is twofold. The first is that they grow faster than a conventional salmon, so we're able to put more throughput through the farm um, with that, so for less resources and the same capital investment. But just as importantly, our fish are actually incredibly efficient in the way that they turn feed into biomass. So they actually require less than a pound of feed to put on a pound of weight. And that's another way of looking at how we use our natural resources. So we think that we're positioned very well for what's going on around I mean, us right now. And I was just thinking of overfishing, which is one of the biggest problems. I was mm. throwing you an alley-oop, <laughs> you know, right. dunk yes. it. <laughs> yes, okay. So we, again, you know, takes the pressure off the oceans, um, net pen farming. You know, there's environmental impact with that. And then when you think about wild-caught salmon, that's really about quotas and protecting wild-caught populations. And so land-based farming, we believe, is going to be a significant part of filling the hmm. gap for, 
for our healthy, nutritious protein because it's a right, different good approach. Good stuff there. Sylvia Wolf, Executive Director, President and CEO of Aqua Bounties Technology. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.